0: Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit CRNAFinancialPlanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by CRNAEducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy Edition. Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy.
1: Three, two, one, two. Well, well folks, guess who's back in the podcasting game? It's none other than your favorite dynamic duo, Terry and Gary. That's right, Terry. They can't get enough of us, can they? No, they can't. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Anesthesia Alchemy once again with Terry and Gary Unplugged. We're your hosts, Terry Wicks and Gary Bridges, the CRNA Dream Team. That's right, we're here to sprinkle a little laughter and a lot of anesthesia into your day, Uh, in a fun way too, please. Well, you know, Terry,
2: we've got some exciting stuff lined up for our fellow nurse anesthetists out there and anyone else who actually cares to join us and learn a little bit about the tricks and tribulations of clinical anesthesia
1: care. Absolutely. And we're going to do some deep diving into clinical anesthesia, tackling those tricky topics with humor and a little bit of heart. And you know what, Terry?
2: We might even throw a few anesthesia jokes along the way as we go, knowing the two of
1: us anesthesia jokes. What? You're kidding me.
2: Yeah, who would have thought between us two? Well, we're uh, just full of surprises. So folks, sit back, relax, get ready for some CRNA magic on anesthesia alchemy. Terry and Gary unplugged. It's anesthesia education with a side of laughter because why should learning be boring, right? Absolutely, Terry. So without further ado, let's dive into today's topic and have some anesthesia fun along the way. Here we we go. (laughs)
1: Today, we've got an important topic to tackle in our segment, drug of the episode. You betcha, Terry. Before we dive into
2: our featured drugs, we need to address something crucial, though. Over the past few years, we've witnessed a significant evolution in the management of insulin-dependent disorders, particularly type 2 diabetes, and in some cases, type 1 diabetes.
1: Absolutely, Gary. The landscape of diabetes management is changing rapidly with new agents hitting the market every day. And you can see them advertised on TV as they're marketed to consumers and and to physicians. And while these advancements bring hope and improved care to our patients, they also pose some unique challenges for our colleagues in the CRNA
2: community. That's right, Terry. Some of these agents, specifically GLP-1 receptor agonists, have serious consequences when it comes to patients receiving anesthesia. As anesthesia providers, it's our duty to stay informed, adapt to these changes, and ensure the safety and well-being of our patients.
1: So today, folks, in in this episode, we're going to embark on a journey through the world of diabetes management, how it intersects with the realm of anesthesia, and what the implications are for providers in the operating room and in the perioperative period. We're going to shine a spotlight on these new agents, explore their effects, and we're going to discuss the challenges they present to our CRNA colleagues.
2: So stay with us, dear listeners, as we navigate through the complexities of these medications and their implications for anesthesia practice. It's a critical topic today, and we're here to provide insights, understanding, and perhaps a little comedy. So Terry, what do you think are the top five new drugs released in the last 10 years in the management of diabetes, specifically type two?
1: Wow, (laughs) well Gary, if we're talking about the top five new drugs for managing diabetes, I'd say number one is diet exercisium. It's the revolutionary compound where you eat right and hit the gym regularly. Wow, (coughs) it's revolutionary. Terry, well, that's
2: not exactly pharmaceutical breakthrough.
1: Well, okay, okay, you got me there, Gary. But in all seriousness, the adv- advancements in diabetes management over the last decade have been nothing short of incredible. From GLP-1 receptor agonists to SGLT-2 inhibitors, these drugs have changed the game for patients, and that's no laughing matter. Well, Terry, you certainly nailed the essence of the top five
2: diabetes management drugs in the last decade. Now let's break them down for our listeners. We're going to dig a little bit deeper here now. And so we'll start with SGLT2 inhibitors. So what are these? These are like the kidney bouncers, kicking excess glucose out of the club. And that group of drug is the Flozin drugs. Uh, You you can go back and look at their generic names. They're a real tongue twister, but they're kind of the cool kids in the group, right? In other words, SGLT2 inhibitors are a class of medications that work by blocking the SGLT2 protein in the kidneys. Now, SGLT2 protein is responsible for reabsorbing glucose from the urine back into the bloodstream. Again, this is at the kidney's. And blo- by blocking the SGLT2 protein, sgl 2 inhibitors, those tongue twister drugs, cause the kidney to now excrete more glucose in the urine. Now, the one that we're going to pay a little bit closer attention to today is the GLP-1 receptor agonist. It's gotten so much attention in the media, uh, particularly this past summer. A number of updates have come out you know, specific to anesthesia, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those. So these types of drugs, we got to think of them kind of as the blood sugar whisperers. It's the glutides, semaglutide, uh, and they have a way of making blood sugars behave while also helping you drop a few pounds, not so bad, Uh, and certainly that's perhaps maybe why some people are taking them, not necessarily for the diabetes, but reducing body weight. GLP-1 receptor agonists certainly are a class of medications that will mimic the effects of the naturally occurring hormone GLP-1. And GLP-1 actually helps regulate blood sugar levels by stimulating the release of insulin from the pancreas and inhibiting the release of glucon from the pancreas. So GLP-1 receptor agonists are very effective at lowering blood sugar levels and impacting or improving hemoglobin a1c levels a very important marker in diabetes type 2 now the next class is dpp4 inhibitors and these are kind of like the gatekeepers ensuring incretin hormones do their dance and so these are the gliptins um you know and they're sort of the guest list enforcers of the party making sure that the glucose party is in control nothing is getting out of control The fourth type is our insulin analogs, and we're all pretty familiar with those. These are kind of like the blood sugar conductors orchestrating harmony, you know, those types of uh, the maestros of the symphony, if you will. And then the fifth category now is a lot of the combination medications, and these really leverage the power of duo drugs of diabetes management, kind of like the Batman and Robin, if you will. Um, but they're typically in a pill form, and those include things like metformin that is combined with SGLT2 inhibitors or metformin and DPP4 inhibitors. Typically, they try to hit two various pharmacological pathways in an effort to manage your glucose uh, at appropriate levels. So there you have it, folks. That's the top five players in the world of diabetes management. They certainly have impact in our anesthetics. Um... They may not wear capes, but they are certainly the superheroes today uh, in the world of diabetes management.
1: Gary, you know it, it, but when it comes to pronouncing some of these medication names like liraglutide and dulaglutide and semaglutide, it's like taking a linguistic adventure. And I heard a pharmacist once say they enrolled in a pronunciation class just to avoid what they call GLP-1 tongue twister syndrome when dispensing these medications. And you know what, Gary? What, Terry? I think the pharmacist might be onto something. We might need some pronunciation lessons ourselves. (laughs) You might be right, Terry.
2: It's a good thing we're CRNAs and not pharmacists, or we'd be tongue-tied all day. But you know what? It's the pharmaceutical industry's way of giving our tongues a daily workout. Who needs a G membership when you can just try and pronounce liraglutide, dulaglutide, or semiglutide? It's the ultimate verbal cardio. (laughs) (laughs) You're
1: you're right, Gary. Forget those fancy fitness apps. We've got our own exercise regimen right here in the world of anesthesia and medications. And just think, Terry,
2: after a long day of pronouncing drug names, we could say we've truly earned our linguistic gains. Well, Terry, since GLP-1 agonists have been making headlines lately and creating quite a buzz in our field, I'd say, why not dedicate the rest of our show to glucagon-like peptide-1 receptor agonists? After all, they do have serious implications for our CRNA colleagues, as well as patients when it comes to rendering anesthesia to patients that
1: actually are on GLP-1s. Absolutely, Gary. It's a topic worth exploring in depth. So let's dive right in, and we'll start with the basics for our listeners who might not be familiar what exactly is the drug class of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Well, Terry, let's start with defining GLP-1
2: agonists for our listeners.
1: Yeah, sure thing, Gary. Hey, let me break it down for our listeners. GLP-1 receptor agonists, short for glucagon-like peptide-1 receptor agonists, are a class of medications used primarily in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Now, they may sound like a mouthful, but stick with me. These medications do some pretty cool things. They mimic the effects of the natural hormone GLP-1, which stands for glucagon-like peptide-1, right inside our very own bodies. Normally, our gut releases GLP-1 as a response to food intake, and it plays a crucial role in keeping our blood sugar levels in check. Now, here's the twist. GLP-1 receptor agonists are typically administered as injections, although there are some oral options available too. So whether it's a little jab or a pill, they help manage blood sugar levels in folks dealing with type 2 diabetes. And that, my friends, is the scoop on GLP-1 receptor agonists. They're like the blood sugar superheroes we didn't know we needed. But Gary, these GLP-1 receptor agonists are no one-trick ponies when it comes to diabetes management. They've got quite a few tricks up their sleeves. First off, they're like the cheerleaders for insulin. GLP-1 receptor agonists stimulate insulin release from the pancreas when blood sugar levels go up, which helps to bring those post-meal sugar spikes under control. But that's not all, Gary. These medications are like the traffic cops of hormones. They put the brakes on glucagon, that troublemaker that likes to raise blood sugar levels. Stinkers. And here's a fun one. GLP-1 receptor agonists are like the slow-motion button for your stomach, and this is really a critical point. They slow down gastric emptying, keeping those post-dinner sugar surprises in check and a few other benefits like appetite suppression, cardiovascular, and renal benefits
2: to boot. Oh, Terry, that's interesting. You bring up a valid point about appetite suppression. It got me thinking, could CRNAs potentially find themselves anesthetizing patients on GLP-1 receptor agonists for non-indicated reasons like prediabetes or even just weight loss, which it is technically not indicated for currently. That may change in the future. But I mean, glucagon-like peptide-1 receptor agonist being an appetite suppressor, I can only imagine that a synthesized form could cause serious issues for our CRNAs particularly things like full stomachs due to slow gastric
1: emptying, right, Terry? Yeah, you raise a really important concern here, Gary, the off-label use of medications, especially when they come with complex effects like appetite suppression and gastric emptying can really pose some challenges for CRNAs. It's vital for healthcare providers to be aware of these potential scenarios and the unique anesthesia considerations that they might entail. So Terry, some of the current
2: GLP-1 receptor agonists on the market, there's a number of them. And here are some examples of GLP-1 receptor agonists that are currently available today on the market. And I'm going to try to pronounce these tongue twisters, although I don't need the linguistic workout now. I think we've had our fair share in this episode, Uh, but I'll do my best. Liraglutide or Victoza or Sexenda, it's used to treat type 2 diabetes, Victoza, and weight management. So Sexenda is actually indicated for weight management. And these two are administered via subcutaneous injections. Now, Dulaglutide or Trulicity, now that's a common one we see on commercials, on TV today. And Dulaglutide is actually used to treat type 2 diabetes and is also administered subcutaneously once weekly. Semiglutide, this is the big one Ozempic and Wagovi. Semiglutide is used to treat type 2 diabetes, and that is Ozempic for type 2 diabetes, and Wagovi is used for weight management, typically administered also subcutaneously in a once a week injection. Exenatide or Bieta or Bidurion, uh, these are used to treat obviously, type 2 diabetes, uh, but they're also administered subcutaneously, but it's twice daily. Now, Bidurion is only once weekly compared to byetta. so got to be careful with these types of brand names that we see out there on the market. Albitaglutide, or Tanzium, was used to treat type 2 diabetes, but it was removed from the market in 2017 due to myriad of, of issues related to it. Lexicenatide is actually used, and that's Ald, Aldixin, uh is used to treat type 2 diabetes and is administered subcutaneous also, but it is only once daily. Now, Terry, maybe it's a good place to perhaps pivot to the pharmacology of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Let's share with our listeners how these actually work and the science
1: behind their effects. Absolutely, Gary. The pharmacology of GLP-1 receptor agonists, those glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, is a fascinating subject. And it's at the core of how these medications work in our bodies. And here's a deep dive into their pharmacology and review some of the things we've already stated. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about each of the features of these drugs and then expand a little bit about what that means. For example, mimicking GLP-1 activity. These drugs are like molecular actors, mimicking the actions of our own GLP-1 hormone, which the intestines release when we eat. And it's a key player in keeping our blood sugar levels in check. Another feature is GLP-1 receptor activation. Once administered, GLP-1 receptor agonists lock onto and activate GLP-1 receptors found in various body tissues. Think of these receptors as tiny switches that trigger various responses. And then there's enhanced insulin secretion. They're like the conductors in a symphony, encouraging pancreatic beta cells to release more insulin in response to rising blood sugar. This helps cells gobble up glucose, bringing down those blood sugar levels. And they are also the inhibition of glucagon release. Now these drugs are like the bouncers at a club keeping glucagon, that troublemaking hormone that boosts blood sugar, in check. This prevents our liver from going overboard with glucose production. And there's delayed gastric emptying, and this is someplace we need to focus our attention because GLP-1 receptor agonists are like timekeepers, slowing down the exit of food from the stomach, and that means a gradual release of glucose into the bloodstream, helping us to avoid post-meal sugar spikes. And finally, appetite suppression for some these medications act as appetite whispers they nudge the brain's appetite centers making us feel less hungry and yet there's more promotion of weight loss combining reduced appetite and delayed gastric emptying you get a potential weight loss benefit as a side effect which can be a big plus for folks with obesity and diabetes and there's some cardiovascular effects that may suggest that there's some protective effects for our hearts Renal effects may be in action to help protect the kidney. Pharmacokinetics we're going to talk about. These drugs are administered via subcutaneous injections, or in the case of one formation, orally. They have different half-lives, as you might expect, and dosing frequencies, with some requiring once-daily injection, and others once-weekly injections. And of course, they all have their own unique metabolism and clearance. GLP-1 receptor agonists are metabolized and cleared from the body by various mechanisms, as you might expect, including renal clearance and enzymatic degradation. And the specific pharmacokinetics can vary from drug to drug. So, Gary, that's a sneak peek. Just a quick look at the intricate world of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Wow, what a mouthful. They're like conductors of a complex orchestra, orchestrating blood sugar and harming in our bodies. I'm so excited. <laughs> Terry. You know,
2: Terry, diving into pharmacology can indeed feel a bit like solving a Rubik's Cube while riding a unicycle. It's a twisty turny world of chemical acrobats. But hey, that's why we became CRNAs to decode that medication matrix for our patient. Who knew our bodies were so particular about the ingredients they prefer? Well, it's like our own secret language of molecules, and sometimes it feels like they're speaking in riddles. But don't worry, our CRNA superheroes are here to translate and make sure your meds aren't plotting any surprise parties in your body. All right, Terry, now that we've gained a better understanding of these agents, let's shift our focus a little to the challenges and concerns that that come with delivering anesthesia to patients who are actually on GLP-1 receptor agonists. Can you outline some
1: of the anesthesia concerns for us, Terry? Absolutely, Gary. You know, this is really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to taking care of patients on GLP-1 receptor agonists who are going to have anesthesia. There are several anesthesia concerns we need to take a look at and considerations that need to be addressed. And here are the five key ones to focus our attention. Number one, blood sugar management glp1 receptor agonists can have a significant impact on blood sugar regulation with increased insulin secretion and reduced glucagon release so during anesthesia and surgery blood sugar levels can fluctuate and we need to be aware of that anesthesia providers must keep a close eye on these levels to prevent both hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia adjusting insulin and other medications as necessary number two Delayed gastric emptying, and this is really important. GLP-1 receptor agonists can slow down the emptying of the stomach, potentially increasing the risk of aspiration from regurgitation during anesthesia induction. CRNAs must carefully consider this effect when planning the timing of surgery and adhering to fasting guidelines. And of course, we always need to be concerned about drug interactions. These medications can interact with anesthetic agents or other drugs used during surgery, impacting the safety and the effectiveness of anesthesia. Anesthesia providers should be well informed about potential interactions and make any necessary adjustments to the anesthesia plan. GLP-1 receptor agonists can reduce blood levels of acetaminophen, digoxin, lisinopril, and lovastatin. Cardiovascular effects Some GLP-1 receptor agonists can offer cardiovascular benefits, and anesthesia itself obviously can affect the cardiovascular system. Anesthesia providers need to closely monitor cardiovascular parameters, especially in patients with a history of heart disease, to ensure a safe and stable outcome. Interestingly, one of my heroes, Alberto Viagra's team, found cardiovascular and hyperlipidemia effects were reduced in type 2 diabetes kidney transplant patients, offering a form of protection for that population. Who would have thought a researcher would be named (laughs) Viagra? I thought that was a drug. I
2: have no idea, Terry.
1: I didn't know that was a person. And finally, let's talk about appetite suppression and weight loss. Patients using GLP-1 receptor agonists may experience appetite suppression. That's a good thing. And weight loss that goes along with that. This can impact medication dosages and anesthesia requirements due to changes in body weight and composition, affecting drug distribution and metabolism. So communication here is the key. Patients should openly discuss their medication use, including taking GLP-1 receptor agonists with their anesthesia providers before any surgical procedure. The anesthesia team will assess each patient's unique medical history, medications, and specific needs to develop a tailored anesthesia plan. Coordinating with the patient's endocrinologist and diabetes specialist can also be incredibly beneficial in optimizing blood sugar management during surgery.
2: Well, Terry, I particularly like that last point. Communication is key and certainly Those that may be out there listening that are not anesthesia providers, it is very important to share the fact that you are on GLP 1 receptor agonists, like many of the ones that we've discussed here in this podcast. But, you know, and the rationale for that obviously is delayed gastric emptying under anesthesia. You know, it's kind of like telling your stomach, hey, take your time, it's not a race. But for anesthesia providers, it's a serious matter because we don't want your stomach to pull a little surprise party in the operating room. So, we'll keep a close eye on it to make sure your tummy behaves while you snooze, because if it doesn't, then anesthesia gets really busy. You know, Terry, it's a bit like that one friend who always is fashionably late to the dinner party, charming at a soiree but not ideal for surgery. CRNAs are the party planners making sure your stomach's RSVPs on time so that we can manage appropriately. Well, all joking aside, folks, we've been having some fun here discussing the quirks of delayed gastric emptying under anesthesia, but let's not forget This is a genuinely serious issue, especially with the most recent increase of off-label use of GLP-1s for the purpose of weight loss, even in individuals who are not even diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. So when it comes to stats, it's essential to address these concerns proactively. So there was a fascinating study where researchers actually analyzed Google search data alongside prescription records from the IQVIA national prescription audit to uncover some of the intriguing trends that are actually emerging in utilization of cardiometabolic drugs and actually GLP-1 receptor agonists as well as sgl 2 inhibitors are in that sort of category of cardiometabolic drugs and so they looked at, uh, you know, a period of time from January of 2016 through to December 2021, and folks, what they found was nothing short of remarkable. Online searches for these drugs soared during this time frame, where searches for SGLT2 inhibitors surged up to 157.6%. And GLP-1 receptor agonist searches skyrocketed to an incredible 295.2% over this time frame. Just what, five years. And if that wasn't intriguing enough, the prescription rate that's secondary to the searches for these drugs followed suit. Notable 114.6% increase in SGLT-2 inhibitor. Uh, prescriptions, and an even more impressive 221% surge in GLP-1 receptor agonist prescriptions. But here's where it really gets interesting. The study actually identified a strong correlation between the online search volumes and actual prescription rates. So that correlation was most pronounced for certain drugs known for their cardioprotective and weight loss effects like... Aflozins, if you will, uh, those drugs, as well as the dulaglutides and the semiglutides. Um, so what does all this mean in the world of healthcare? Well, it definitely suggests tracking online searches tends to be some valuable information or tools that we can use to monitor how the trends are, the ways people are using and securing cardiometabolic drugs, specifically for weight loss. These tend to be a complement of data that we traditionally would like to rely on and even help us make predictions into the future of prescription patterns. But it is fascinating uh, to look at that uh, intersection between patient digital behavior and, and where that intersects with healthcare delivery uh, and perhaps shedding some new light on how drugs are utilized in, in their trending. So that study sort of opens up another set of exciting possibilities for understanding how people are engaging with medication in the digital age. So even though we've just uncovered some intriguing data regarding the soaring trends of GLP-1 receptor agonist prescription practices, but what does this mean for our listeners, for our healthcare providers, in the world of anesthesia? You see, folks, it's not just about the numbers and the percentages. It's about real people, real patients real patient care. As GLP-1 usage continues to skyrocket, and it will for the foreseeable future, we're here to make sure that our anesthesia providers are ready to face those challenges head on. So Terry, in this fast-paced world, a changing medication uh, prescription uh, landscape, if you will, what advice would you have for our CRNAs when they find themselves in the OR with patients on GLP-1 receptor agonists?
1: You know, absolutely, Gary. Let's break down the American Society of Anesthesiologists' consensus-based guidance recommendations for our CRNAs and healthcare providers who are on the front lines of anesthesia care. Now, when it comes to patients scheduled for elective procedures, especially those who are taking GLP-1 receptor agonists, we need to be extra cautious. And here's just a quick overview. Before the procedure, if a patient is on a daily dosing of GLP-1 agonists, it's probably a good idea for them to hold them on the day of surgery. If they're on a weekly dosing regimen, consider stopping these medications a week prior to the procedure. And please, please be aware, this recommendation applies regardless of why the patient is taking that GLP-1 receptor agonist, be it for type 2 diabetes or for weight loss. Now, here's an important point. If the GLP-1 receptor agonist prescribed for diabetes managers are held... For a longer period than their dosing schedule, it's a good idea to reach out and consult with their endocrinologist. They can help bridge the antidiabetic therapy to avoid risks of hyperglycemia. On the actual day of surgery, if a patient experiences GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, retching, bloating, abdominal pain, we need to consider delaying the elective procedure it's crucial to have an open conversation with the procedurist or surgeon and the patient about potential risks of regurgitation and pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents, which, as we all know, can be deadly. However, if the patient has no GI symptoms and they followed the recommended guidelines by holding their GLP-1 agonist, we can proceed as usual, taking all the necessary precautions. Now, If the patient has no GI symptoms, but hasn't held the GLP-1 agonist as advised, we've still got a few options. We can proceed with what we call full stomach precautions, or if we're proficient with the technique, we can evaluate gastric volume using ultrasound. If the stomach is empty, we can proceed as usual. But if it's full, or if the ultrasound results are inconclusive, We have to be cautious and we should consider delaying that procedure or treating the patient as a full stomach and managing accordingly. Now, let's talk a little bit about fasting guidelines. It's essential to note that there are currently no evidence to suggest the optimal duration of fasting for patients with GLP-1 agonists. That research simply hasn't been done yet. So we have to be more cautious, and we have to look for more concrete evidence, and we recommend following the current fasting guidelines set by the ASA. In essence, Gary, these guidelines prioritize patient safety, and they provide a framework for CRNAs and healthcare providers to make informed decisions when anesthesia and GLP-1 agonists intersect. Wow. Thank
2: you, Terry, for breaking down those recommendations. These are critical. You know, I, I... remember looking into the literature and and a lot of these recommendations were coming out in just this past June of 2023. Also, during that time frame, as those releases were coming out from the American Society of Anesthesiologists, the APSF, uh, the Patient Safety Foundation, uh, then all of a sudden I had seen a lot of uh, news clips were um, starting to come out into sort of the periodicals, if you will, and I remember seeing a news clip this past summer, around uh, roughly the end of July, from ABC News, and it was it was entitled "New Guidance Suggests Skipping Ozempic Before Surgery," and that would go for all of uh, these class of drug uh, drugs. Uh, and they said, "Having surgery coming up, talk to your doctor about pausing Ozempic," and that sort of caught my attention, Terry. For our CRNA listeners out there, what are the recommendations put forth by even our own organization, the AANA, regarding anesthesia and GLP-1 receptor agonists?
1: Boy, geez, you know, I have to admit, I wasn't aware that there were any recommendations from the AANA regarding GLP-1 receptor agonists at this time. But you know, uh, I'm sure their are practice committees looking at that, and it's always a good idea to stay informed, read the literature, look at the guidelines, especially when it comes to potential anesthesia challenges. And speaking of challenges, I came across a compelling article from the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation entitled, Are Serious Anesthesia Risks of Semiglutide and Other GLP-1 Agonists Underrecognized?" And this one was published back in June of 2023, and it really dives deeply into some crucial aspects of these drugs. So for example, GLP-1 receptor agonists, as we know, are becoming increasingly popular for weight loss and diabetes management, as we stated earlier, and you see advertisements on TV for them all of the time. Uh, lots of singing and dancing and weight loss. It's really exciting, Uh, but it's not just a matter of taking a pill and making everything all better. But what really caught my attention in this article was the mechanism of these medications. They directly stimulate GLP-1 receptors in the stomach, which can lead to delayed gastric emptying and the potential for retained gastric contents in patients who are coming for anesthesia. The article discusses some serious considerations for CRNAs in their patients who are taking GLP-1 receptor agonists. In fact, even highlights two case studies reported in the article. These are real-world examples that shed light on the challenges that anesthesia professionals may face when taking care of patients that are taking these drugs.
2: Terry, it is so essential that our CRNA listeners and other healthcare providers, for that matter, in general... Um, they need to be aware of these potential risks and challenges. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper into those case studies that you mentioned. Can you
1: summarize those for our audience? Sure, I'd be, I'd be delighted to. Let's start with the first one. Uh, a 60-year-old woman faced a challenging situation. She needed an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging study, with sedation due to claustrophobia. Uh, so she wanted to be sedated, not put to sleep. Now, she had a history of hypertension and she was overweight. She had a BMI of 28 kilograms per meter squared. And here's where it gets interesting. In the month leading up to her MRI, she had started taking semaglutide or Ozempic, as it's more commonly known for weight loss. And her last dose was administered a week before her MRI appointment. Now, the patient did all the right things. She fasted from sol- for solid foods for over 18 hours before her eval. And however, despite her efforts, she described feeling full. And that's when the anesthesia team decided to use a point-of-care gastric ultrasound to get to the bottom of things. And what they found was surprising solid gastric contents. With this discovery, the anesthesia team had to make a tough call. They chose to cancel her scheduled MRI because there was a significant risk of aspiration during the anesthesia delivery. This case underscores the importance of understanding that delayed gastric emptying effects of GLP-1 receptor agonists, even in patients who have been fasting for an extended period. It's a real-world reminder of the challenges CRNAs face when patients are on GLP-1 agonists. Now, there is a second case study that we need to talk about, and this one involves a 50-year-old woman with a significant medical history. She had class 2 obesity with a BMI of 37.7, type 2 diabetes. She was a big woman, type 2 diabetic, hypertensive, and she had obstructive sleep apnea. She was scheduled for a robotic assisted hysterectomy due to endometrial hyperplasia. That's a big deal. Interestingly, she had previously experienced gastroesophageal reflux disease, but those symptoms had resolved after she started taking terzepatide. Wow, that's a mouthful. Monjuro is a much easier word to say, and that was given by an injection. Her last dose was administered just two days before surgery, and alongside Monjuro, she was on medication like metformin, hydrochlorothiazide, pregabalin, and intermittent oxycodone. Now, the day of surgery, the patient had been fasting since the night before, following standard preoperative fasting guidelines. Anesthesia induction and intubation proceeded smoothly and uneventfully. However, after intubation, an oral gastric tube was placed and gastric contents were suctioned. The surgeon surgery itself went without complications, but here's where it gets really interesting. As the patient was prepared for extubation and an emergence from anesthesia, she unexpectedly experienced a large volume of emesis. This emesis contained particulate matter that had matched what she'd reported eating several days prior to the surgery. Luckily, the endotracheal tube was still in place and helping to ensure the safety of her airway, which remained protected throughout this ordeal. After the emesis was cleared, she was safely extubated. In the post-anesthesia care unit, she was closely monitored and fortunately did not show any signs of gastropulmonary aspiration. And she was subsequently discharged home later that day without complication. Now, these cases highlight the critical importance of understanding the potential risks and challenges associated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, especially in the context of anesthesia and surgery. It's a real world reminder of the complexities that CRNAs face and may be challenged with when caring for patients on these medications.
2: Wow, attention dear GLP-1 enthusiasts. When you've got a nurse anesthetist in the house, there's no room for your stomach's delayed departure shenanigans. They'll keep a watchful eye on your tummy's exit strategy, ensuring it doesn't stage a great aspiration escape. It's like having a gastronomic guardian angel by your side. Well, Terry, it seems like these GLP-1 receptor agonists are giving our CRNA colleagues quite a gastrointestinal adventure to deal with during their anesthetic. But remember, folks, this is no amusement park ride. Uh, We all know that the outcomes are not good should our patients aspirate after drugs like this and rendering an anesthetic. So Terry, in the first case, we had a patient with a stomach that decided to hold on to its secrets even after 18 hours. Like, this is profound, 18 hours. It's like the stomach's playing a game of hide-and-seek with her anesthesia team. Luckily... We had our trusty, dusty gastric ultrasound to uncover the mystery. And so, CRNAs that are out there that are not comfortable with ultrasound probes uh, really need to get facile with POCUS, right? Uh, And it's very easy to do. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Performing gastric ultrasounds in your practice, it takes less than a minute to do, and you get your answer almost immediately. Now, that second case, we witnessed a surprise food flashback just before extubation. It's almost like the stomach said, I remember that meal from a few days ago. Let me share it with everyone. <laughs> Thankfully, our pa- patient's airway remained protected, and she went home without a gastropulmonary party crasher, because that happens, she buys a little bit of a residence in the ICU on a, on a breathing machine, and that's not good. Well, all kidding aside, these cases really underscore the importance of a thorough patient assessment, understanding those unique challenges presented by GLP-1 receptor agonists in the perioperative setting. Now, CRNAs, you're the vigilant guardians of your patient's well-being, even when their stomachs decide to throw that little party of their own. So, you know, Fantastic stuff, Terry. I really appreciate that overview that you give. You're really nailed at home with those case studies that was published by the APSF. So let's now dive into some other potential side effects or concerns associated with GLP-1 receptor agonists during anesthesia. We've talked about risk of aspiration due to the delayed gastric emptying, But what other challenges might CRNAs encounter when caring for these patients on medications like GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, when they're rendering care in the operating room?
1: Well, Gary, there's um, some other considerations we need to to take a look at when these patients are taking GLP-1 receptor agonists and they're going to have anesthesia. And as you mentioned, one significant concern is the risk of aspiration due to delayed gastric emptying. In fact, in 2023, the American Society of Anesthesiologists recognized this risk and suggested some important guidelines. Now, for patients scheduled for elective procedures who are on GLP-1 agonist, there are a few key recommendations to keep in mind. First of all, it's advised to hold the day of surgery dose for those on daily dosing. Or, if it's a weekly dosing regimen, consider holding the medication for a week prior to the procedure. This holds true regardless of whether the patient is taking the GLP-1 agonist for diabetes management or for weight loss. Now, what if a patient hasn't followed these recommendations and has not held their GLP-1 receptor agonist before the procedure? In those cases, it's essential to assess the gastric contents. This can be done, as Gary said, using point-of-care gastric ultrasound. If solid gastric contents are detected, it's crucial to consider a case cancellation or at a minimum, rapid sequence induction and intubation technique during anesthesia to minimize that risk of aspiration. So, Gary, these guidelines emphasize the importance of communication between patients, anesthesia providers, their healthcare teams to ensure a safe and smooth surgical experience for all individuals on these GLP-1 receptor agonists. It's all about minimizing risk and optimizing patient care and patient safety. Yeah, that's a critical point, Terry. Collaborative communication and
2: thorough preoperative assessment are essential in ensuring patient safety on those that are on GLP-1 receptor agonists prior to surgery. Well, hey there, fellow anesthesia enthusiasts. It's that time of our show where we like to add a dash of intellect to the mix. That's right it's time for our anesthesia word of the day segment now i know what you're thinking terry why on earth do we need a word of the day in the middle of all of this anesthesia excitement
1: well gary you know what they say a word of day keeps the confusion away plus it's fun to drop some anesthesia knowledge bombs right in the middle of a casual conversation <laughs> absolutely terry and today's word is a mouthful i'll tell
2: you that are you ready for it Hit me with your best word, Gary. <laughs> well, today's word is cyclopentanofinanthrine. Quite a tongue twister, isn't it? <laughs> I can't wait to hear this, Jerry. What's cyclopentanofinanthrine all about?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your scrub caps and your mask because I'm about to introduce our anesthesia word of the day, cyclopentano and this time it's all about the smoky melt in your mouth goodness of Texas barbecue brisket. (laughs) Texas barbecue brisket? You got my
2: taste buds tingling, Terry. How does cyclopentano
1: fit into the world of barbecue? Well, partner, rumor has it that cyclopentano is the secret ingredient in old Smoky Joe's legendary, wait for it, drumroll please, extra smoky brisket rub recipe.
2: <laughs> You're pulling my leg, Terry. You mean to tell me that our anesthesia word of the day is the key to the most mouth-watering tender brisket in all of Texas? You
1: betcha, Gary. When old Smokey Joe was asked what made his brisket so darn delicious, he just grinned and quietly whispered cyclopentano and the flavor would reach barbecue nirvana. <laughs> That's some barbecue magic right there, Terry. But seriously, what's the connection to anesthesia? Well, Gary, just like a little bit of smoky brisket makes your taste buds sing, Anesthesia keeps our patients comfortable during surgery and they wake up feeling as satisfied as a Texan at a barbecue cook-off. <laughs> I never
2: thought I'd hear cyclopentano in the same sentence as brisket, but you've certainly spiced things up, Terry. Hey, Gary, when you're in Texas, you've got to add a little barbecue flavor to everything, even anesthesia. <laughs> you're absolutely right, Terry. So folks, next time you're savoring that smoky Texas barbecue brisket, just remember the magic word, (laughs) cyclopentanophananthrine.
1: Wow, that is a mouthful.
2: (laughs) All right, folks, it's time to break down that mysterious word, cyclopentanophananthrine. No more barbecue secrets. We're diving into some real chemistry here. Cyclopentanophananthrine is a mouthful, but let's unpack it. It's a chemical compound and a type of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon. Now, don't let the big words scare you. It's just a fancy way of describing a specific arrangement of carbon atoms in a ring structure. The name cyclopentano phenanthrene, as it suggests, has a cyclopentane ring that's actually fused to a phenanthrene ring. These compounds as you know, are probably found in all kinds of natural and synthetic substances or forms. And those, at least for us in our world, include things like steroid hormones. Those include things like progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, and aldosterone. And these hormones are critical for various physiologic processes in the human body, including reproduction, metabolism, stress response, electrolyte imbalance or balance, Uh, Things that we deal with in our anesthetics from day to day. So cyclopentanophenanthrene is a common structural feature that we actually utilize or manage in our clinical practice. Now, interestingly, a couple of other compounds that we're going to talk about and actually focus on in this episode is glucagon and insulin. These do not contain cyclopentanophenanthrene rings in their chemical structure. Now insulin, as you recall back to the books, is a peptide hormone composed of two amino acid chains, an alpha chain and a beta chain, and they're linked together by disulfide bonds. It is produced by the pancreas and plays a critical role in regulating our blood sugar that we, in some cases, incessantly monitor intraoperatively, but it does uh, facilitate the uptake and storage of glucose in the cells. So, well, there you have it, everyone. The real deal on cyclopentano phenanthrene. It's not about barbecue, although I'd like to think so. It's all about the fascinating world of chemistry and anesthesia.
0: Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com your trusted provider for CPC core modules, and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com.
2: Well, folks, hold on to your stethoscopes because it's that time again, we're about to embark on that journey into the world of research. And you know what that means. It's time for the Research Roundup. (laughs) Terry and I are here to tickle your scientific curiosity and share some exciting findings that tie into today's topic. So grab your lab coat, adjust your safety goggles, let's dive into that intriguing world of research. The topic of today is pulmonary aspiration. Terry, what
1: study are we looking at today? Oh, Gary, I tell you, we've got a hot one for you as we delve into the interesting study, Characteristics and Outcomes of Patients Hospitalized Following a Pulmonary Aspiration. Boy, I'm just breathless. I can't wait. These guys, Augustine Lee and and colleagues, really did some fascinating research. Their research project explores a crucial aspect of our discussion on aspiration risk. It's sure to set some light on the outcomes of patients who experience pulmonary aspiration, something we'd all love to avoid in our patients. So we're about to discuss and dissect this study and extract some valuable insights. Well,
2: Terry, I guess we'll have to make sure we don't have any popcorn during this segment to avoid any aspiration mishaps. But in all seriousness, let's dive right into the study of Augustine Lee and the team on the characteristics and outcomes of patients hospitalized following pulmonary aspiration. Sounds like an intriguing topic,
1: and I'm eager to learn more about it. Take it away, Terry. All right, Gary, here it comes. Let's break down the key findings from this study by Augustine Lee and colleagues. They conducted research on a cohort of 5,584 subjects and the average age of 56 years. So these were not spring chickens. And interestingly, 57% of them were men, if you can believe that. Now, scary, scary stuff. The overall mortality was 5.1%, and they found that 6.8% of the participants developed ARDS, as we all know it as acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that's some bad juju. What's interesting is that aspiration, a condition where the stomach contents enter the airways, was identified in 212 of their patients, which accounted for about 3.8% of that total cohort of over 5,500 patients. Among those who aspirated, 41% also met the CDC criteria for pneumonia, which suggests a significant overlap between these conditions. Now, here are some factors that stood out. The aspirators were more likely to be male, more likely to be older, white, and admitted from nursing homes. They also had a history of excessive alcohol abuse. Now, is excessive alcohol abuse bad for you? Apparently. Interestingly, there was no significant difference in body mass index or smoking status between those who aspirated and those who did not. However, aspirators had a higher prevalence of prior chest radiation. Kind of an interesting little tidbit. Now, when they looked at outcomes, they found that ARDS occurred more frequently among the aspirators, not really a surprise, 17% versus 6.4%. Moreover, ARDS was more likely to be of at least moderate severity in this group. Mortality was also significantly higher among the aspirators with a threefold increase compared to those who did not aspirate. This pattern was consistent even after adjusting for age, sex, and other risk factors. Now, another important observation that was among the patients who required ICU admission, those with clinically defined aspiration had longer ICU and hospital stays. Not really surprising. They also required more non-invasive, and invasive ventilatory support. Now, in terms of medication, the use of proton pump inhibitors, PPIs, was more common among aspirators, but this didn't seem to significantly affect the frequency of clinically documented gastroesophageal reflux disease. Among the pre-hospital medications, only beta blockers appeared to be protective against the need for invasive ventilation. Now, lastly, it's worth noting that aspiration was associated with a higher absolute risk of hospital and ICU costs compared to non-aspirators. You know, time in the ICU is expensive and cost the hospitals lots and lots of money as well as terrible inconvenience to the patients. And although this difference disappeared when adjusted for certain factors, it was part of their study. Overall, this study sheds light on the complex nature of aspiration and its significant impact on patient outcomes, particularly the development of ARDS and mortality. And again, ARDS is nothing to fool around with. It emphasizes the need for further research and interventions to address this critical issue.
2: Thanks for breaking that thorough breakdown, Terry. You know, you bring um, some really important things to mind, you know, for listeners out there that may not be anesthesia specialists, and typically will wonder, like, well, why am I nothing to eat after uh, midnight now that we've got these new GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs? It's a serious matter. And, and I'll tell you, you know, the numbers that I recall back in the day of risk for aspiration for acute uh, care facilities and trauma patients was 30%. Um, those that had full stomach, 30% would aspirate, and a large percentage of that 30% would go to the ICU, spend their time on a ventilator. And, you know, I tend to share those with patients as to, this is the reason why we don't want full stomachs, is because you could be in the ICU for prolonged periods of time. And then with that, and I think the study highlights that point, mortality or death, is associated with if you are not able to recover from this, so pretty serious topic. It's clear that aspiration is a multifaceted issue with significant consequences for patients. Um, so now, on a lighter note, it seems that we can add GLP-1 receptor agonists as another potential risk factor. As we've discussed through this entire episode, at least when it comes to receiving anesthesia, who knew weight loss medications? Could add an extra layer of complexity to the mix, too. But all jokes aside, it's essential that anesthesia professionals are aware of the risks that GLP-1 receptor agonists actually present for our patients, as well as those that may be on them and are listening to this podcast. Um, But one of our key concerns is mitigating that risk that is definitely associated with the medications and the risk of aspiration um, should we embark on an anesthetic in these patients. So it's all part of ensuring the safety and the well-being of our patients. All right, before we move on to the next segment, let's address one more important question, Terry. Are there specific cases where patients should avoid GLP-1 receptor agonists altogether, like total contraindication? And what are some of those red flags to watch out for? Can you share with our listeners some of the scenarios where these medications might not be the best choice and what red flag should be raised as far as concerns for both patients and the healthcare providers themselves.
1: Absolutely, Gary. You know, when GLP-1 receptor agonists can be incredibly beneficial for many individuals, but there are certain cases where their use should be avoided. So here's a quick rundown for our listeners. First, Individuals with type 1 diabetes should generally avoid GLP-1 receptor agonists, as these medications are primarily intended for those with type 2 diabetes. And just to share a little personal insight, one of my students who graduated last year was a type 1 diabetic, and his um, endocrinologist prescribed uh, Ozempic for him and he became significantly hypoglycemic. And that is one of those risks. So that's something to really be aware of. They're not for type 1 diabetics. Second, if someone has a history of pancreatitis, it's probably a good idea to steer clear of these medications. There is a true, genuine concern that a GLP-1 receptor agonist might increase the risk of pancreatitis or worsen the condition. And pancreatitis can be deadly. And it's a bad way to go. There's nothing good about pancreatitis. Now, third, individuals with a history of medullary thyroid cancer should avoid GLP-1 receptor agonists. And I have to say, I'm proud of the pharmaceutical industry for emphasizing this on their television commercials. They are very clear that if you have that history or family history to stay away from these drugs. Now, finally, we need to think about those women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, It's essential to consult with their healthcare provider. The safety of GLP-1 receptor agonists during pregnancy and breastfeeding is still being studied. So the jury's still out whether or not these drugs are going to interfere with pregnancy, whether they're going to wind up in breast milk, what effect they might have on feeding infants and so forth. So uh, another precaution. And lastly, and obviously, if you're allergic to GLP-1 receptor agonists, probably not a good idea to take them. Uh, so <laughs> avoid them in that particular instance. Okay, so keeping in mind that GLP-1 receptor agonists can have side effects like nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and stomach pain, all those really great side effects that we all look forward to. They may be uh, mild, they may be temporary, but as you mentioned earlier, more serious side effects such as pancreatitis, hypoglycemic and allergic reactions are possible. It's crucial to have an open and honest conversation with your health care provider to weigh the risks and benefits before considering these medications. They can provide you with the guidance you need and monitor your health closely to ensure your safety.
0: Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families.
2: Well, we're back, everyone. We hope you've been finding our discussion on GLP-1 receptor agonists and anesthesia enlightening and informative. And if you're not an anesthesia provider, we hope you, the consumer, are learning a lot about the risks of GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, not only for yourself, but for uh, the person that's rendering the anesthetic to you. Now, as we move forward, it's time for that segment that we all like to call Clinical Quick Tips. Now, this segment is designed to provide you with some key clinical insights and practical tips that you can apply to your practice right away. So if you're driving in your car, listening to this podcast, and you walk in to your hospital, your same-day surgery clinic, you'll have a little bit of information about these that you can embed into your practice immediately. We know that time is often limited in clinical settings, so we aim to distill the essential information into quick and actionable takeaways uh, after these types of podcasts. But remember, these tips are not to be exhaustive. You know, they're more like valuable little nuggets of knowledge to enhance your clinical decision-making. And if you want to take a deeper dive into the topics that we are discussing in our podcast's like this one today, we also provide references for review on the website. So you can go to the podcast, and we'll have a little quick summary with some references that you can further investigate for your own edification. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode, Clinical Quick Tips. Off to you, Terry.
1: Great. Great. Here's this summary. These are like the Cliff Notes versions that you need to kind of keep in mind when we're talking about GLP-1 receptor agonists and their potential anesthetic risks and implications. Number one, GLP-1 receptor agonists are gaining popularity as a breakthrough treatment for weight loss and diabetes. You're going to see them more and more frequently in your anesthesia practice. They stimulate GLP-1 receptors in various organ systems, leading to weight loss, better glycemic control, and even may have some cardiac and renal protective effects. The primary mechanism of GLP-1 receptor agonists involves slowing gastric emptying. This can lead to an accumulation of gastric contents, even in patients who followed fasting guidelines. So that just remember, that patient may have a full stomach, even if they've been npo Now, number two, these medications come with common gastrointestinal side effects that can include nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. Now, they say these symptoms will improve over time with continued use, but they can be challenging for patients. They are rare, but serious side effects associated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, such as acute pancreatitis, gallbladder issues, and even anaphylactic reactions can occur and anesthesia providers have to be vigilant in monitoring their patients. Point three, anesthesia care represents unique challenges for patients on GLP-1 receptor agonists due to the risk of pulmonary aspiration. Pulmonary aspiration is among the top three adverse effects related to airway management and can have devastating consequences, as we mentioned earlier in our research segment, including ARDS, pneumonia, and death. Recognizing patient populations at elevated risk for increased gastric volume is crucial in delivering safe anesthesia care. Some risk factors include gastroparesis, prolonged bed rest, opioid use as we know, and certain medications like our old friends, the GLP-1 agonist, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on to point four. The consensus recommendations is to hold GLP-1 receptor agonists on the day of surgery. Now, the optimal approach to withholding these medications is still being defined given their long half-lives. Also, there is growing interest in continuing GLP-1 receptor agonists without interruption during the perioperative period due to their potential cardiovascular benefits and low risk of hypoglycemia. Point five, it may be necessary to reevaluate traditional fasting guidelines for patients on GLP-1 receptor agonists. The use of gastric ultrasound to assess gastric contents and volumes before anesthesia is an option when available. Point 6. In the case of uncertainty regarding gastric contents, rapid sequence induction of anesthesia and gastric decompression prior to emergence should be considered. Emesis and aspiration during emergency remain a real concern, even with gastric decompression if the patient has residual solid gastric contents. Now, in conclusion, as GLP-1 receptor agonists become more common in clinical practice, anesthesia professionals need to be aware of the potential risks during anesthesia. Further research is needed to fully understand the safety aspects, particularly in the peri-anesthetic period. Wow, Gary, that's a lot. Yeah, thank you
2: for that, Terry. Uh, you know, a lot of important points that you've highlighted here, and just sort of off the cuff a little bit, you know, I was having this conversation about um, GLP-1 receptor agonists just the other day uh, when we were doing a case together, and um, they had told me, MRI scanner, quick scan, plus you know, same as the case study you presented, uh, patient was off their uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist for uh, a week. Uh, Actually, it was 12 days. It was almost two weeks. And they performed a gastric ultrasound and actually found solid food at 10 to 12 days off of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So, you know, the current recommendations are that. Recommendations and guidelines. Nothing substitutes good critical evaluation, assessment, and uh, detailed history of our patients so that we can provide that optimal. And I was taken aback when they had had told me, and obviously they canceled the case unless the patient wants to do it without sedation. Um, So that is an option depending on the type of procedure that they're having, correct? You know, if they can do it without sedation, I don't know about other than claustrophobia, I don't think, uh, well, I know I won't do endoscopy without sedation. But, you know, some people do it, and my hat's off to them. But nonetheless, uh, you know, you do highlight a really fascinating trend, which we've alluded to here earlier, on patient evaluation, and that is the use of -of point-of-care testing. So let's kind of pivot a little bit, and let's dive into another crucial aspect of our discussion, the role of gastric ultrasound in assessing a fullness of the stomach before surgery, particularly those patients that are on um, GLP-1 receptor agonist. So Terry, can you please outline for our listeners here some of the essential elements of gastric ultrasound as we've kind of alluded to already?
1: Absolutely. You know, one of the really great things that's happened in the anesthesia community in the past 20 years is the use of point of care ultrasound for regional anesthesia, particularly vascular access for invasive lines. Uh, It really has opened a whole, whole window into the world of anatomy and physiology for us. Now, gastric ultrasound is a valuable tool in our arsenal for evaluating stomach contents, especially in those patients that have been taking GLP-1 receptor agonists. And here are some key elements for our CR and our colleagues to keep in mind uh, when they consider the use of uh, gastric ultrasound. First of all, it's good to be familiar and to have practice. It's crucial to be comfortable with the technique, to be familiar with the ultrasound equipment that you're using, to have practiced this in the past, so that you're not approaching a patient with the ultrasound probe for the very first time wondering, what in the world are you doing? So understanding the functions and settings will help you obtain accurate information and give you more insight into gastric contents. Number one. And number two, patient preparation. Explain to what the patient what you're going to do. Ensure them that they're in a comfortable position. And it's important that the patient is cooperative during the scan. Number three, transducer selection. Choosing the appropriate transducer is essential. For gastric ultrasound, we want to use a curvilinear or a phased of transducer depending on the patient's body habitus. Remember that the deeper the image, the less resolution you're going to get because the transducer is both a transmitter and a receiver. Wow, just like your telephone, but it's really cool. Probe placement. Oh, this is my favorite part. Position the transducer gently on the upper abdominal area just below the xiphoid process. You'll be looking for the gastric antrum, which is the preferred area to assess stomach contents. Optimization of your image. Adjust the depth, the gain, and the focus to obtain a clear image of the gastric antrum. A cross-sectional view of the stomach with distinct layers is what you're aiming for. Carefully evaluate gastric contents. That's the purpose of why we're here, gastric assessment. Solid contents may indicate a higher risk of aspiration, especially in patients who have not followed fasting guidelines. And be sure to record your image. All new ultrasound equipment will allow you to uh, print an image of your Your scan, record those findings in the patient's medical record, document the quality of the ultrasound image, any observations that you make about gastric contents, and your overall assessment. And finally, communication. Be sure to share your findings with the other members of the anesthesia and surgical team when necessary. This collaborative communication is crucial to ensuring patient safety.
2: Outstanding, Terry. Ooh. You provided some fantastic insight into gastric Sound and its role in assessing stomach fullness, particularly with relation to our topic today on GLP-1 receptor agonists. Now, I'm curious, in the realm of anesthesia and preoperative assessment, are there any standardized aspiration risk assessment tables or tools or nomograms that can help us estimate the actual gastric volume. It sounds like something that could be incredibly valuable for us here in a listeners.
1: Absolutely, Gary. The use of gastric point of care ultrasound in assessing stomach fullness is gaining traction in clinical practice. And who knows, it may be a standard part of anesthesia education here in the very new future. And there's a framework known as IAIM, which combines both qualitative and quantitative evaluations, particularly when necessary. In a blinded study involving healthy human subjects with an initial probability of a full stomach set at 50%, a positive gastric point-of-care ultrasound test indicating solid content or more than 1.5 mL of clear liquid per kilogram substantially increased the risk of a true full stomach to nearly 98%. That's a pretty good confidence. Now, conversely, a negative test result showing a grade zero antrum or less than one and a half mLs per kilo reduced the probability to less than 0.01%. This underscores the diagnostic accuracy of gastric point-of-care ultrasound in helping us to correctly identify or rule out a full stomach, especially when a patient's fasting status is unclear. Gastric point-of-care ultrasound results can significantly guide safe anesthesia management. For instance, if a test result is negative, indicating an empty or near empty stomach, the surgical procedure can proceed as planned without specific aspiration precautions. However, if the test indicates a full stomach, oh my goodness, whether due to solid or thick fluid content or exceeding that threshold of 1.5 mLs per kilo of clear fluid, the next step can be tailored based on the urgency of the surgery. For elective or semi-urgent surgeries of lower acuity, it's probably prudent to postpone the procedure. On the other hand, in an urgent or emergent situation where there is an imminent risk to life or limb, proceeding with the surgery while taking full aspiration precautions may be necessary. Now, these precautions can encompass various measures, such as considering alternatives to general anesthesia, Uh, Inserting a nasogastric tube for pre-induction suctioning. Boy, patients love that. Avoiding an unprotected airway during deep sedation or securing the airway through an intubation and rapid sequence induction if general anesthesia is truly deemed to be necessary. And yes, there is a gastric volume chart that can be found at gastricultrasound.org. Let me repeat that gastricultrasound.org. That's a good resource for you. So in essence, gastric pro-indicare ultrasound combined with the AIM framework provides us with valuable tools to make informed decisions about the anesthetic management in scenarios where gastric contents are a concern.
2: Well, folks, that's a wrap for today's episode of Anesthesia Alchemy with Terry and Gary. We hope... You had as much fun as we did discussing the fascinating world of GLP-1 receptor agonists, aspiration, unexpected twists and turns, as well as the tongue twisters. And uh, (laughs) it's been a great, great uh, episode uh, and sitting here and and, uh, joking around, Terry. But all jokes aside, um, you know, it is a serious issue that is emerging in our practice today, and uh, it uh, appears that it's only going to gain traction for the most likely rationale, I think, that a lot of the public is starting to consume these agents is for weight loss. Now, there is a study that is looking at, and perhaps they will add it onto the package insert for cardiovascular benefit, too. Um, there'll be more to come on that.
1: That'll sounds like another episode on down the road. <laughs> Protect your heart and lose weight. Look better, and it'll make your hair shinier. And Gary, remember, anesthesia isn't just about putting people to sleep. It's about waking them up, too. So it's a complex blend of science, humor, and a dash of magic. And it's a chance to make a difference in somebody's life every single day. So it's exciting to be part of this community. That's right, Terry. And speaking of
2: magic, join us next time on Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. For more funny learning anesthesia, things that we do, say and where we'll uncover the secrets of the operating room and keep you
1: entertained along the way. Hey, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, stay curious, stay safe, and keep those anesthesia dreams alive.
0: Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA-recognized provider, offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior-approved Class A CE credits, with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need Pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well, with over 40 Pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile-friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com.